Hi, my name is John Kim. I'm a therapist who went through his own rebirth many years ago, and I've been documenting my journey ever since, sharing my life lessons and revelations. I believe in casual over clinical, with you instead of at you. I come unrehearsed on purpose because self-help doesn't have to be so complicated. So you're going to love this episode. It's an important episode. This episode is Eve Rodsky, who created Fair Play. That is not only a book, but also a documentary. Vanessa and I saw the documentary. And I'll be honest with you, as a Korean American who had parents from the old school, um, I grew up where my dad would yell across the, the, the other the room for um, my mom to get him a glass of water. He did no domestic work. Uh, he was a workaholic outside of the house, but inside the house, he did nothing. I also learned nothing. I didn't learn how to fold laundry or to um, do dishes or make my own bed. My mom did all of that. And so watching this documentary really brought up a lot for me. And uh, we were lucky enough to get the person who wrote the book, Eve Rotsky. And uh, she transformed a quote-unquote blueberries breakdown into a catalyst for social change when she applied her Harvard-trained background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated, treated our homes as our most important organizations? She uh, went on to, to sell um, a book called Fair Play, hitting the New York Times bestselling list and uh, a national bestseller of uh, Find Your Unicorn Space. Here is our interview and conversation. Uh, I know you'll find it really interesting at the least, uh, hopefully effective as well. Enjoy. Yeah, I would like to start with this sentence um, and just dive right in. Um, I'm surprised you didn't get the blueberries, (laughs) which sounds like a t-shirt, by the way. Um, But that was the bathroom moment for you, huh? Yeah, uh, I think what the, you know, what do, what do therapists say that research is me search? <laughs> so, um, you know, John, I didn't expect to be an expert on the gender division of labor, right? That wasn't what my goals were on my third mm-hmm. grade. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up board? It probably said like mm-hmm. astronaut. But for me, um, the, the work I've been doing for the past 10 years started with my own breakdown and my own marriage. Uh, after my second son, Ben, was born. And it was, it was my husband, Seth, sending me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Mm. And obviously, as you will unpack with me today, right, the blueberries are never the blueberries. Uh, And as a mediator, we often say that, you know, the presenting problem is not the real problem. But, But that's, that day, I'll just give you sort of the scene so you can unpack it. But I had a toddler at home. I was trying to earn money in a full-time career. I had a baby uh, that was just born um, that day that he was sending me that text. I had uh, gifts for a newborn baby to return in the back of my car. I had a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. Mm -hmm. I was with that toddler, racing him to get him to his toddler transition program Mm -hmm. um, that morning. And... um, it was the same time that my job, my corporate career was sort of falling apart by my direct boss telling me when I got back from maternity leave that I would not no longer have any direct reports because it was going to be easier for me if they gave my direct reports to another colleague um, mm-hmm. 
a white man, of course. And so it was all this abandonment. I think the work abandonment, the loneliness of having a toddler and a newborn, and then finally feeling like I was being abandoned by my partner, Mm. not being seen and Mm. being, you know, the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. That sort of is it. That was the end of that phase of my life where I literally could not take it anymore. Something had to change. Mm. So that uh, that was the, uh, the the straw that broke the camel's back. That text um, made you pull, uh, I guess, on the side of the road. You had this breakdown. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the first domino to something that actually became greater than you. Um, so we watched the documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's such a com- controversial topic. And one of the things was silly. Yeah, but <laughs> yes, the, it is silly, right? It is silly, but I feel like you turned over a rock that needed to be turned over for a very long That's time. Right. You know, you put a black light on something. Um, and I can tell you, to be honest, as, as a, a male who grew up very um, old school Korean American, where I used to watch my parents, and, and this is kind of sad, my dad used to, you know, order my mom to bring him a glass of water from the other room, right? Mm-hmm. He was, um, and it's that kind of old school. Uh, uh, where where the uh, the 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 mother the woman does everything. I yeah. mean, she was and they both mom. worked the same amount. Yeah, hours yeah, outside the house, right? Too. And my dad basically did nothing. Um, so of course that seeps into you know children, my programming, uh, my blueprint, and so watching that documentary um, on the surface, I agree with everything that you're saying, and it was really um, refreshing to to understand from your point of view what it's like. But then there was that you know, part of me that is old school or that is, that has been, you know, so it's like activated and it's like, wait, I don't, you know, I, I, a lot of resistance, right? Yeah. Well, I think, and I want to read you this beautiful email. I'm going to grab it um, from this, this wonderful young Korean man in South Korea. Mm. Uh, Don't let me forget to read it to you at the end. It was, but Korea is, South Korea is actually one of our best selling. um, places where it's called the fair play project there. Mm-hmm. It was mm. translated that way. So I, I think it's really interesting which countries Brazil too, you know, there, but what I think was extra interesting about, I, I interviewed a lot of actually South Korean couples and, um, and there was one card we'll talk about sort of all the tasks in sort of the fair play system, right? There's a hundred tasks that are sort of the metaphor for what fair play became from that mm. day of the blueberries breakdown. But, uh, and a lot of them are, are tasks that are, I call repetitive tasks, the daily grinds, like yeah. laundry and dishes. And actually Korea is the place where I've gotten the most feedback that in-laws should be a rep- as repetitive of a task as um, dishes and yeah. groceries, because it's such a big burden to be the sandwich generation there to take care of your filial duties um, to your parents. So it's mm-hmm. a very interesting topic because it spans the globe, John, and you know, mm-hmm. it's, and I will say that there's a part in the documentary and we'll sort of back up to sort of the journey. Cause one of the, my, my son, my middle son, who's 11 always likes to Google my name, which is so funny. I'll see it like in a, a search and I'm like, who's Googling me? And he, and he said, well, mom, the, the number one search for you is, are you still married to daddy? Mm, um, yeah. All the nosy people. And, <laughs> we know that well. So, yeah. yeah. So Seth and I are still together 10 years later after this Blueberries breakdown. But what I thought was so, and he also agreed to be in the Fair Play documentary, which sort of illuminated these issues, as you said. 
But what I thought the most important thing that he said was, because the, the, the documentary really opens on my eyes waking up after that blueberries text. And mm -hmm. it, it really starts to bother me when I start to see when I went back to work after having to quit my job because that corporation did not give me what I wanted. They told me I was going to have to pump in a broom closet. They took away my direct report. So as I said, I was feeling that abandonment from my workplace. And then Seth sends me this text and then he keeps sending me texts. And, and as you know, in the documentary, I tell the story of another text he sends me when I'm on my way to the airport. Finally, when I get back to work after that baby, where I'm feeling really confident and I'm about three or four weeks, uh, four months into my second child thing, like, okay, I got this. I can leave for a day to go to Seattle. And Seth decides to send me another text that said, you know, a guy left his jacket and beer bottle on our lawn. Mm, right. Mm -hmm. And that that goes into this whole story about what it felt like to be this empowered woman during the day and then to come back at 11 o'clock that night and to see the jacket and beer bottle still there. Mm -hmm. And as you know, what I talk about is that feeling that, you know, first giving Seth the benefit of the doubt because, you know, that jacket and beer bottle had been on my lawn for 16 hours and thinking, you know, maybe he was dead. But then <laughs> after realizing he wasn't dead, figure trying to figure out why he had three hours after our kids went to bed to check sports center and work mm -hmm. out and finish a PowerPoint deck, but not enough time to pick up a jacket and beer bottle he found on our lawn 16 hours earlier. And what he says in that documentary that really was so important for me to hear. And as you know, as people who are, you know, your experts in navigating some of these couples dynamics, I didn't need Seth to say, I will change everything tomorrow. What I needed him to say and what he says in the documentary is that at that point in our lives, 10 years ago, when why he did not pick up that jacket and beer bottle on our lawn and why he texted me about it was not a, hey, this is weird text. It was a, this is on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I expected, he said, I expected and assumed mm -hmm. that somebody else would be picking up that jacket. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because, John, it reminds me a lot of what you just said about the assumptions and expectations that are built into us, that are conditioned into us since we were born. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is such a triggering topic. If I could have just built the fair play system, I would have and just unleashed it to the world. Why it had to be a book and a movement is because it's bigger than just telling you how to manage your home or organize your, your home. Yeah. It's it's a bigger conversation because exactly, it's about all the deep-seated assumptions and expectations around gender and race mm -hmm. and class. And it all sort of seeps into this uh, last frontier of equity, mm -hmm. which is the home. So Eve, let me ask you, and by the way, I'm, I'm Vanessa, I'm John's partner. Hi, Vanessa. Um, yes, I, I know. I, I tend to join on, on whenever he's like, oh, I'm having so-and-so. I'm like, and I'm going to be there. <laughs> I love it. Hey, can, can I just say real quick? Um, I was folding the laundry right before we came on. <laughs> so happy. But wait, yeah. but wait, he made sure to mention and make sure I saw <laughs> that he was folding the laundry. So that's another part to it. So yes, um, yes. what I, what I want to ask, what's really been um, something I've been curious about is, and as a therapist, but also as, you know, a wife, well, not a wife, technically, I guess partner. the live-in partner yeah. and uh, mother of a toddler myself um, with many friends who are in similar times of their life. 
you know, how do you feel like you were able to, or maybe, I don't know if you've cracked this or not, um, how do you have these dialogues within a household without the other person going to a place of anger or without, let's say, let's say the primary caregiver, right? So it doesn't matter if it's woman or man, um, going into it angry and shaming and resentful and finger pointing because we know shame never is a motivator, right? For change. Um, and I, I see it in myself, but I also see it in a lot of my clients that the struggle is to get past the resentment and understandable rage that comes from, but it's not fucking fair. Like, I don't want to have to tell him to do it. I want him to do it. Right. So we get stuck 100%. in this anger and then the conversation doesn't go anywhere. And I'm curious to know kind of how you, how you were able to work through that. Oh my God. Yes. I mean, I think this is, let's just say this conversation deserved a trigger warning, right? Yes. Because of how much rage and resentment blueberries can, mm -hmm. can, can garner. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing I was most worried about, and so I will say, so I want to tell you two things about that. The first thing I will tell you is that there is a secret formula. Mm. It's a little bit like saying you have to exercise every day because it's not, mm -hmm. it's, it's a practice, right? It's yeah. not, people want like a one-stop fix or one conversation that's going to change anything. But the, the, there's a practice that I've seen now watching, you know, I probably have the longest longitudinal study of unpaid labor mm. in the world at this point over a decade. And so much that we're partnering with like healthcare institutions now because they're seeing how impactful that data can be on women's health yep. and men's health too. Mm -hmm. Because actually the, mo the most, it's actually more important for men's health because we know now over a hundred years, there's a, the longest longitudinal study actually of men's health shows that actually the only thing that really moves the needle on men's health um, when you control for everything else is the quality of their relationships. Yep. Mm -hmm. So this is impacting quality of relationships, as you just said. So yeah. the secret formula is a formula of boundaries, systems, and communication. Mm-hmm. And as a mediator, as somebody who works in uh, behavior design and law and governance, my therapist friends, my cousins, you guys over here, you can, you get on board with me with this. Yeah. And that's the beauty. There's no, there's no do no harm. It's not like we're clashing because you talk about this and I've heard you, John, talk about this, right? It's, but it's the combination of boundary systems and communication. Now we can break all those three down, Vanessa, because if you're feeling that resentment, you want to see where the most lack is. Mm -hmm. That's what I, right. We want to go into yeah. like, is it a boundaries issue? Is it a systems issue? Is it a communication issue? If you can unpack for yourself mm -hmm. where the pain is coming from, then we can give you actual solutions mm. for me though. Right. When I did not have any tools because this, I did not have the angry therapist podcast. Mm -hmm. I did not have a community online. This is 20, mm -hmm. 11, 2008, yeah. when I had Zach, there was not even an iPad mm -hmm. in 2008, right? We, yeah, that was pre-social media. Yeah. Pre there was pre-social media. Yeah. There was no such thing as podcasts or Instagram. So right. we had, you know, local baby groups, but they were talking about like what baby bottle to buy. Like I felt so alone. I wish I had you. But so back then what I had to do was really do all the steps that were wrong before I could get to the boundary systems and communication formula, Vanessa. So I did all the wrong steps for you, for those out there. <laughs> and those wrong steps were, I will just say, is first just being like, I'm fucking done. I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, the night of the 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 uh, drunk guy's jacket, I ended up picking up that jacket, but I threw 
the gloves on Seth's side of the bed. Yep, that was what I was like, yeah, like, I put it on his on his pillow. <laughs> you're fucking welcome, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I'm a mediator. Like yeah. I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. You should feel bad for me. But what I do for those families is I bring grace and humor and generosity to their organizational decision making. Mm -hmm. And so you, I should know better. But in my own marriage, I could not translate at that point my, what I knew was working for other organizations to the most important organization, right? Which mm -hmm. is our home. Mm -hmm. But once I was able to do that and translate what I was doing in the workplace and say the home is the most important organization and I could bring my boundaries, systems and communication formula to the home, that's when things sort of opened up. But the wrong things I did before that, before I could sort of sit down and rationalize that I had some skills that maybe were different than what was happening in the conversation in 2008, or then 2011, when the breakdown happened, was that I made a list. And that was the most toxic but eye-opening piece, Vanessa and John, because I did not know how to save myself. I was at rock bottom. And this is when Eat, Pray, Love was really popular. So I thought, you know, do I just eat, pray, love this out of my marriage? And so there was no tools. And so what I said to myself was the only thing I could think of doing is reading every book and article that has been written on this topic. Mm -hmm. And so this has been called the second shift. It's been called emotional labor. It's been called um, the mental load. But the most interesting to me was a woman in 1986 arguing that women would never get out of the resentment, Vanessa, because this is invisible work. Mm -hmm. That's why I was laughing when you said, John said to you, I did the laundry. Because the truth is, this is very in invisible work. Yeah. And, 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 it, and her point was that it, in the power systems of a patriarchal white Christian society, it makes sense to keep that work invisible because we build society on the backs of the unpaid labor yep. of women and especially women of color. Mm -hmm. so, so that is why it's so complicated. But what was so beautiful about the term invisible work was it got me on this path of saying, well, if I could just make the invisible visible to Seth, it will solve everything. Mm. And that was the beginning. It the, the, the trick was that it wasn't the end, Vanessa. Yeah. The toxic thing was I created the should I do spreadsheet, which was a nine month process that finally made me feel like I wasn't alone. My corporation had abandoned me, Seth had abandoned me, but the, having a community of women across the country before things went viral, mm -hmm. who said, I got your should I do spreadsheet, and I believe in you and you're onto something was the most empowering time in my life. But it was also the hardest time, John, because I sent that spreadsheet to Seth after nine months and making yeah, you got the 98 monkey, tabs. You got the monkey with the uh, hands over his eyes. Right. <laughs> and I got the monkey with the hands over its eyes. I did, Seth did not receive that spreadsheet well, mm -hmm. as John, you wouldn't either. Mm -hmm. And so what I realized was that so many women have been making lists for so long mm -hmm. and lists alone, they just don't work. Mm -hmm. They don't work. They're, they're toxic. They unleash consciousness without a solution. Mm -hmm. And so that was all the, as you asked me, Vanessa, I had to go through all the wrong ways to handle the situation before I could come on to say to you all yeah. that I see now what works yeah. and what works is when you tackle boundaries, systems, and communication, not all at once, but understanding that those are the three pieces of the puzzle and working on them with your partner will only make your relationship better. And, or, it will get you to a place of realization of kind of where you're at as far as partnership goes. And exactly. I guess exactly. if, if you really are confronted with a, with a hard and fast, I'm not in, interested or willing in doing this, then that's, I always say, it's like, that's information for you. And then you get to do with that information what you will. Right. 
A hundred percent. Because you can't 100%. force somebody to be on board. Like they're either going no, to be on board or no. they're not. And if they're not, that is information. Exactly. And it's so invalidating if somebody will say to you, well, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. Who cares if I left the sponge in the sink? Mm-hmm. Who cares if you had to pick up the kid from the school? And so that invalidation. But I will say that I don't blame men for that because Fair mm-hmm. Play became a love letter to men really quickly. Yeah. And I will tell you why. Because the number one thing women told me over the past 10 years that they hated about home life was that they were overwhelmed, mm-hmm. that they they did not have choice over how they use their time. Yes. That's a very horrible way to live, to feel like your time has been predetermined for you. Mm-hmm. But men, I never heard men, and I interviewed men in 17 countries now, all the way from people who identified as working poor to men who identified in the 1%. Men never said to me, I don't want to be a partner. So right. I would never hear John say, well, I just, I, I just don't want to be a partner to Vanessa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just not what I heard. What I heard was, I'm doing my best. Mm-hmm. I don't know my role. When I try to do anything, it gets redone or I get criticism for it. Yep. So what's the point? I should just get out of my partner's way. So it was never really an unwillingness to take the garbage out or pick up the drug guy's jacket. It was more of a either not an understanding or having to unpack, like you said, John, the cultural expectations. But mostly it was a psychological safety issue for men. Because we know now in the workplace that, of course, overwhelm is a terrible feeling, but actually a worse feeling is not knowing your role. Yeah. So men were telling me that they were not feeling psychologically safe in their own home because they didn't know their role. That's a and huge, so the people who adopted, point, by the way, Eve, I just want to like, it, it was, everybody yes. <laughs> well, I will say that was my big aha moment yeah. because it was the men who were in the military and it were, it was the men who were coaches that started to adopt fair play first. Yeah. Because they would say to me, the most important thing for me in my system of the military or a coach is understanding that my point guard will not come in from my center. Mm-hmm. It's knowing your role. And yeah. so that's why it became such a love letter to men, because I felt so bad for you, John. Like, how can you live in a place where you don't feel psychologically safe? Like, that mm-hmm. doesn't feel good. Yeah. Eve, I was going to ask you, how are you um, getting buy-in from men? And this is it. You've already answered my question. Yeah. Is, uh hmm not saying, hey, man, this is what you need to do, but uh, deploying empathy and saying, oh, we understand, mm-hmm. like like shedding light on also what men are going through. Their pain, right? In this equation, um, which, you know, uh, then you italicize the word fair, right? So right. it's not just mm-hmm. about, hey, uh, you need to do these things because it's never been happening, but how are you also feeling? And I think that's when you start to um, hold hands with your partner instead of pointing fingers. Yeah, it's this idea too, this understanding that I think I'm hopeful because it feels, it does feel like a generational shift that's happening around that the patriarchal structures that we live in benefit no one. We all suffer under patriarchy, except maybe a few people at the top that are still calling the shots, right? A few organizations, a few religions, a few whatever you want to put up at that top. But like men and women both, they don't, nobody wins, right? Men are unfulfilled. Men have no deep connection or intimate relationships with themselves, with friends, with their partners, right? Women feel burnt out, stressed out, disconnected, touched out, all these things. Like we're all miserable. So this is what's such a beautiful 
beautiful thing about fair play is it's like, this is a solution for everybody. This isn't actually just for women, you know, air quotes, women to feel more empowered. It's like, this is for everyone to have deeper connection. Yeah. And, and I got to say, I don't know what the stats are, but if um, men are complaining about intimacy or complaining about, you know, not yeah, having enough yeah. sex and all of that stuff, yep. um, it's really hard to kiss someone when you get resentment. In yep. you. <laughs> it's really hard to, oh my God. you know, do anything intimate if you are angry at totally. that person. And yeah. feel unfulfilled. And, and by the way, there's a huge study. Speaking of that, John, we, I just got some great validation that there's a huge study that just came out showing that couples who have a more fair balance of domestic work, unpaid labor in their homes mm -hmm. um, have, have more sex. Yep. They, they, and it's exactly why I, I believe, they didn't say why, but I believe it's exactly, John, what you just said. But well, I'll tell you a quick story that I think, bedroom, yes. I think. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yes, well, I think, and this is the systems piece of fair play. I think since we're going deeper and, you know, I love our, this conversation because you're taking me to places, you know, you're allowing me to really do some storytelling and, and go into my own sort of the pain. And I think I'll just tell you a quick story recently of a couple, because I think it really it shows sort of the boundary systems and communication, sort of how it all works together. It's a very mm -hmm. small story, but just given that you, you know, that you talk about stories and you have the uh, lens of being, you know, hearing people's stories, this was a really beautiful one. It was, I'll just call them, you know, Richard and Amy, since I didn't, I'll call them another friend. So, cause I didn't get permission, but the, the, as we were saying about the system of fair play. So what the should I do spreadsheet turned into was a hundred cards. That's a metaphor. I mean, obviously you can find the cards online and actually use them, or you can just see them in a book or we have them online at fair play life as a free resource. But there are these hundred cards that I'm asking you to talk about mm -hmm. and not just talk about, but to, to own. Mm -hmm. So, the, the main premise of fair play, and this is what I was telling this couple, so I'll tell you how Richard and Amy really saw the beauty of the system part. And then we'll talk about boundaries and communication. But the system was really hard for me because I couldn't really get data 10 years ago. We Because what was happening is men over-report, women under-report. There's all these weird mm -hmm. things going on with how people report mm -hmm. domestic work. So what I had to do was take the should I do spreadsheet and instead of just saying who does groceries, when I would hear we both do, or who takes the kids to school, we both do, I had to start asking the most important question that I asked in 17 countries. And that question was, how did mustard get in your refrigerator? <laughs> and for other countries, I would substitute different condiment in if I knew that they weren't using mustard. But what was so beautiful about the heteronormative couples, because these patterns affect single parents and LGBTQIA couples as well. But what was happening to women partnered with men was I started to see a pattern that we know is also toxic in the workplace. So I was seeing that women were in charge of conception. That's, that's a project planning phase, like noticing the ideas. They were telling me that they were the one noticing their second son, Johnny, liked yellow mustard with his protein. Right. Mm -hmm. He won't eat his turkey sandwich unless it's dipped in yellow mustard. Yep. So that noticing and awareness is what we call conception in the organizational management, project management world. So I would write down, ooh, conception, I know that phase. And then I would hear from women, oh, I get stakeholder buy-in for what my family needs from the grocery list. And I'm monitoring that mustard for when it runs low. Mm -hmm. 
didn't actually say stakeholder buy-in, but that's what I was sort of listening for. Yeah. <laughs> and so that that is the planning phase. And so I'd write down, ooh, that's planning. And then I would hear, oh yeah, and I send my partner to the store for the yellow mustard. And he brings some spicy Dijon every yeah. fucking time. Oh God. Oh God. And so Eve, <laughs> Eve, you want, and then they would say to me, these other cards, like the harder ones, like my living will, like you want these, you know, I'll show you them, right? These are the hundred cards, the metaphor. Mm. You want me to trust my partner with my living will? When he when can't even bring home yellow you, mustard. He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. And so then I said, okay, ding, ding, ding. That's it. Mm. That was it. It was back to the psychological unsafety of men. It is highly toxic to bring in an employee just to execute. Mm. Control and no context, what we often call nagging, but I call for men the rat fuck, like you were being rat fucked because mm -hmm. you're getting a random assignment of a task. Mm -hmm. Go pick up the mustard. You have no context for that request. And then you're getting shamed or being mm -hmm. withheld from intimacy because you didn't get the right type of mustard. That dynamic where someone's holding conception and planning and the other person execute is, is, is very frowned upon. In, in the workplace. We, we don't hire people and say, hey, what do you want me to do today? I'll yeah. just wait here to tell me what to do. My Aunt Marion's Mahjong group has clearly defined expectations. You don't bring snack to that group, then you're out. But the home is the last place where we're doing this weird dynamic and dance mm -hmm. of women holding the conception and planning and men executing. So the systems piece of fair play is just you hold the conception, planning, execution all together. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's 50-50. I don't care if John just holds one card or you, Vanessa, holds one card and the other person holds all 99, mm -hmm. as long as it feels fair to you and people understand the ownership mindset. So I told this to Richard and Amy. So they started to adopt fair play. And one of the cards that Richard took on in this deck is a hard one. It's like, it's like the living will one. He took mm -hmm. on magical beings. Okay. So magical beings is defined as Santa Claus, hmm. tooth fairy, Easter bunny, I don't know, elf on the shelf, whatever, yeah. you know, um, happily ever after and lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Lucky, lucky leprechaun. I don't know. There's a lot of those things. So, so he takes it on and the he, they report back to me that the first time he's responsible, it's a second, his daughter's second tooth. Okay. So he's responsible now for being tooth fairy. The tooth fairy doesn't come. The tooth fairy doesn't come. Okay. So they do the fair play cards. Mm -hmm. He says he's, Richard said he's going to own being the tooth fairy and the tooth fairy doesn't show up. Mm -hmm. So what was so beautiful, again, as therapists, I want you to help me sort of unpack the smallness of the story, but why I like it so much. So Richard and Amy report to me that before fair play, if they hadn't entered the system, that this is the dynamic. The dynamic was going to be that Amy said the all or nothing communication language of you're the worst fucking father that's ever existed. Mm -hmm. You've ruined our child's magic. Now they don't believe in anything. I will never trust you to do anything for us again. Right. She mm -hmm. would have gone very big. She told me. Yeah. And then Richard said he would have reacted by blaming Amy yep. for not reminding him to put the dollar under the pillow. Mm. That was their dynamic. Mm hmm. So in this new dynamic, they told me what happened was Amy knows that Richard had already owned it. The most powerful thing that Richard did was he apologized to her that morning. And he said, he didn't blame her and say, you should have reminded me. He said, my bad. Like I forgot. 
and I will carry through my mistake. Mm. Once Amy heard that accountability from her partner, she was able to trust him. Accountability and trust are the two most important things for any organization, including the home. So once he got, he gave her the accountability, she got the trust back. She left him alone to carry through his mistake. He tells me he emails toothfairy at gmail.com <laughs> in front of his daughter that morning and says, you know, I don't know what's going on. It's probably a supply chain issue. You know, there's a lot of pandemic related problems. Like he emails toothfairy. At Man, you gotta, give, you gotta give him points for that. You gotta give him points. For, for, <laughs> I for love that. him, but that's my point. Yeah. I love Richard. I love him, and I love that Amy gave him the space to make yeah. mistakes. He puts in the in the email line, urgent, <laughs> not near you know, non delivery of tooth. Right. So this is the crazy part. The crazy part is that, or the weird part, um, is that he he gets a response from this woman. We find out she's a woman who's amazing dentist who, who responds to this email account and says, I'm so sorry, I'm backlogged. He prints out the email. He shows it to his daughter and says, when the tooth fairy is late, she brings double the money. Mm. And that was it. That's the end of that story. Yeah. What a great story. I know. You, you know, the one word that lights up for me with that story as a therapist is, um, humanization, mm. meaning, mm. hey, I did something wrong. I'm sorry. So vulnerability, which produces relationship glue, yep. it flips the magnets back. Now they're on the same page. They're holding hands again instead of pointing fingers. And acceptance, right? I mean, this is what you and I talk about all the time, which is also like owning it. I mean, yeah. both people owning it, like Amy owning the fact that like, had this been the old way of doing, she would have been mm -hmm. on his back and she would have, you know, belittled him and all of these things and, like owning. That's where I would have gone with it. But also Richard owning I fucked up. Like I forgot, yeah. you know, and yeah. the fact that both people could own that part to me also builds so much trust because like you said, the fact that he came to her and said, here's what I didn't do. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> that gives her like, oh, I can trust you. Um, and it's amazing how much trust can be built when somebody just steps up and says, Hey, I fucked up. Eve, when I was 29. Exactly. And married, it's so small. Yeah. Oh, sorry. When, it's when so I was, small. When oh, no, I was 29. Yeah. Tell me. Yeah. I, I um, uh, had never made the bed. My mom always made, made the bed for me. I was very enabled. So at 29, I never made the bed. Married someone who uh, started chores at like age five yep. in a very kind of militant, mm -hmm. you know, a conservative Christian family. And so mm -hmm. um, I tried making the bed once and she's like, she shamed me and said, if you can't do it right, don't do it at all. You know? And so because of that, I stayed away because I didn't want to mm -hmm. get, get, um, you know, my, my ego bruised yeah. or I felt le like less mm -hmm. of a man. Sure. So I just let her do it. Not because I didn't want to, but I didn't want to get shamed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't exactly want to get, I didn't want to yeah. get, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, told that you're, you're not a man, which, which, which is not what she said, but how I took it. Right. right? This feels a lot. Also what you're talking about, you feels a lot like what within the therapy world, we talk a lot about over-functioning and under-functioning. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's not yeah. that it's always gendered, but, but, there is a high percentage of over-functioning that goes to women, right? And a high percentage of under that goes to men um, in, in heteronormative couples. And so much of the under-functioners 
beliefs and why they continue to underfunction is because they have a deep rooted belief that they're they're not capable. They can't do things right. And it's not just usually from the partner that they've learned that, right? They've learned that since they were kids. Either they had the mom that always did it for them, right? Or they had society telling them, don't do it. Well, somebody will do it for you, right? Um, or John, like you're a young, the youngest, which I do believe sibling position, di- position yeah. plays into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but so many women end up being the over-functioner. And typically the over and under-functioning happens in a response to some kind of anxiety. The problem is it feeds the anxiety, Right. So it's like you're putting fuel on a fire and like I just keep over functioning in response to my anxiety, which creates more anxiety. And then, you know, same with under functioning. So I love that you've broken it down into a very and I'm a left brain person. I used to be in corporate for a long time. So for me, having be very like systems oriented, here's the steps like that's so helpful, so helpful. And you know what's interesting, though? What's interesting exactly is that so many people, even those who have ADHD, could really benefited from the system because it's broken down, right? It's not just like, help me, right? It's Mm -hmm. like saying, okay, well, you're in charge of spirituality. So that means you sign up the kids for Sunday school or whatever, whatever the card is. And again, you can start small. Like for Seth and me, it started really, really small because I was holding all the cards. I was in that very over-functioning relationship. And now that I've done my own work, my own therapy on why, Mm-hmm. this happened to me. Um, I was able, and you saw some of that come out in the documentary where I was able to say I was a parental child. Yeah, and I've same. learned now that, you know, when you've, you've, you've taught yourself, you don't need anybody else because they've completely disappointed you over and over again. Whether it was my dad, who was going to take me to Kentucky Fried Chicken and he never showed up for his custody nights or my mother who came home, you know, an hour later, every time that she said she would, mm-hmm. or was going to show up at a recital, never did. Mm-hmm. When you start to to take on the I can do it myself, then you are completely overfunctioning to the point mm-hmm. where again I ended up in a blueberries break I would break down over, you know this random text my husband sent me, and Seth who's a very high functioner in other areas of his life, right started to shy away from the home because it felt like the only place John like you said where he was failing, mm-hmm. and it's these really really difficult dynamics and why I think they're so hard to break though. As you said, the patriarchy doesn't really benefit us, Vanessa. But mm-hmm. I think why they're so hard to break, it's not the system, right? I mean, we just went over the system in a minute. It's really not rocket science to just yeah. say, like, own own the task, right? If you're in charge of groceries that week, like, don't ask me what you, I want, what I need from the store. Like, just right. figure out, you know, with your partner, get the buy-in from them, ask them what they need, you know, observe what's in the refrigerator. Um, you know, it's it's not hard. It does take time, though. Mm-hmm. And so that's the issue. So it's the other problem that men were willing to admit to me that I thought was so beautiful and vulnerable was that they still to the, when I, and it came up because I would ask this provocative question, which was as a society, as a man, do you believe an hour holding a child's hand in the pediatrician's office is just as valuable as an hour in the board, a boardroom, mm-hmm. even if they weren't sitting in those boardrooms? Mm-hmm. And so even no matter all across the socioeconomic status, even if the men were not in the boardroom, if they were like a postal worker, they still believed that they were conditioned to feel mm-hmm. that an, a time is money. Yeah. That an hour should be looked at mon- monetarily. Mm-hmm. And so that they did believe if their partner was making less money than them um, or working not, not for pay as a, a, a stay-at-home partner, 
that they did not value their time the same right. as their own time. And that was a real breakthrough for at least for me talking to men to say, well, that's a boundaries issue because mm. the system is not rocket science, but we're not going to really get to the system if we don't start to reevaluate our relationship with our partner's time. And I think that's what Seth and I had to do. We had to really unpack why it was that when I left the corporate workforce as an M&A attorney to start working with families and then ultimately to become, you know, an activist, my the hours that I was spending got higher, but my on average salary was getting lower. Right. And then he was basically saying to me, well, you can do this other work as long as you take on more of the unpaid labor in the home. And I kept saying to him, but I believe that time is 24 hours in a day and we both just get 24 hours in a day. And shouldn't we each get time choice over how we use those hours? And it took a, re that was the hardest thing for Seth and me to unlearn mm. because remember he grew up in a culture where we've told women that breastfeeding is free. Right. When it's really 1800 hours a year, it's a wow. full time job. <laughs> he's grown up in a culture where he's watched if women enter a male profession, salaries automatically come down. Yeah. He's grown up in a culture where he's seen his mother say things like, well, in the time it takes me to, to tell my husband what to do, I should do it myself. Um, I'm a better multitasker. Um, you know, all these toxic messages that he had to also unpack with me. Mm. And that's why I think Vanessa going full circle to the beginning of this episode, where we said, why is this so difficult? Why is this yeah. so triggering? Why is this more than the blueberries? It's not really the systems piece. I got that figured out for you. It's the, um, it's the boundaries piece. It's mm -hmm. understanding that you want to take on some of this unpaid labor because it's your humanity. Right. It's not just garbage. It's right. not just, uh, the, it's not just, oh, I have to put a dollar in the pillow. Our memories come from who took us to the grocery store. Our memories come from who was our tooth fairy. Yes. And so it's it's starting to move from housework and chores to understanding that this these cards this is how our memories are formed and it's our, it's our humanity and it's it's important. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, because you know, I've seen studies that have talked about specifically men when they're questioned on their deathbed, right? About the biggest regret like across the board again, doesn't matter socioeconomic status, doesn't matter what we're talking about, the biggest regret is usually not spending enough like time with their family right? Not having deeper connections with their family. And even if they were physically there, I think what you're saying is so powerful because they might've been physically there in the body, but were they the tooth fairy? Were they sitting in the pediatrician's office holding their, their kiddo's hand, right? Because that's where the deep connections and the memories are actually created. And so many men don't do that because of the systems that we live in and all of this toxic stuff that we've learned, right? And, you know, capitalism and patriarchy and all this stuff. So um, when you pose it like that to both parties, right? Like, isn't this worth it? Like that kind of deep connection yeah, and intimacy, yes, isn't that yes. worth it? Because if that's worth it to you, then you'll be willing to do all the messy bullshit, right? Yes, yes, the, yes. the other shift I think that needs to happen, and um, I also want to be respectful um, of your time because I know you're very busy. Yeah, but the other thing, um, I'm moving. Yeah, uh, the other I thing. Moving today, yes. <laughs> no big deal. Um, yeah, you're sitting on a crate with with a <laughs> yes, helicopter on headphones crate. on. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So for men, because of grind culture and mm -hmm. um, entrepreneurship and all of that, being the hardest worker in the room outside the house means something, right? That means, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it gives me a cape, 
Yeah. I feel like, you know, right. And, and, and you see a lot of that Mm -hmm. with, um, on social media and, you know, people like the rock and stuff. Um, but then when you come home being the hardest worker in the kitchen or bedroom or living room, that doesn't, because we don't see any of that, right? Mm -hmm. What we see is you're outside putting in the hours, punching a clock or working out or doing what that's manly coming home and folding laundry what that doesn't make it. Yeah. So I think we need to see more of that. I think the next generation of boys need to see men, real men Mm -hmm. being the hardest worker in their homes, you know, and not just behind a, um, uh, uh, a lawnmower. Right. So like actually inside the the house. And I think the more that we see visually that, and that kind of soaks in Mm -hmm. the more that we can kind of change that blueprint, you know, and shatter that, that old image that we're used to that we're, you know, from our parents. I saw a funny tweet years ago. It was like, it was like a Newsweek cover or something that said like, um, you know, millennial men, something along the lines of like millennial men are like essentially losing their ability to like build things. Like they, like they don't, you know, on average, they, they can't do things around the house. Right. And, um, it was this article that was again, that was like the cover and somebody retweeted it and then it just blew up where it was a man. And he said, um, I might not be able to build a desk with my bare hands, but at least I have emotional connection with my daughter, you know? (laughs) And it was like, said kind of like snarky, but it was just such a, I, I mean, it stuck with me. I probably saw that maybe 10 years ago and it is, it's like, it's impactful. I think as the millennials and younger, right. I would say that are really, and I mean, you're Gen X. So I, I see it happening with maybe the younger Gen X as well, where it's like, those old norms, like, I don't care about that. I don't care that I can't build a desk with my hands. I'll pay somebody to do that. I can't pay somebody to make an emotional connection with my kid, you know, or my wife or whatever. Well, I, so. that's why I want to end on this amazing man, Wu K. Lee's email. I, I, I'm going to grab, gonna grab it, it. And then we'll, yeah, I wanna, it. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to grab okay. it. I love him. He's a, a young husband in Korea. And I said, mm-hmm. I would get, and it, oh, Vanessa, from what you just said, it's like a perfect way to end. And, you know, we could always do a part two with listeners. I love you guys yeah, so awesome. much. I love that we're um, ending on Korea. I, um, no, yeah, I think, um, I think more work needs to be done there, of course. Anyway. Okay. I'll read you his beautiful uh, email that I got on LinkedIn from him. Um, no, no one I knew just uh, at LinkedIn out of nowhere. He says to me, Eve. Um, okay, here we go. Um, Dear Mrs. Rodsky, I read your book, Fair Play Project, and I write this message, message to express gratitude for you. I bought this book as one of the husbands in the world. And I confess, I thought I'm a fairly good husband, but I was wrong. <laughs> that just made me laugh. I strongly believe everyone must read this book before they got they got married or have a baby. Personally, I lost my sister, mm. who was a high court judge and a mother of two elementary student sons four years ago. Mm. It was because a cerebral cerebral hemorrhage stroke took her. I believe this disease exploded as she worked too hard and handled too much things during her father-in-law's death, which was just a week before her death. Mm. She took care of too many things as a full-time worker and a perfectionist judge. I think of this fair play project were spread over the whole Korea and every husband executes this project. My sister would still be with us Mm. having a balanced life with her smiling face, which I terribly, terribly miss. makes me cry every Mm. time. I know. I'm like, I'm thinking for writing this book. I know. 
I know. Thank you for writing this book. And I will practice this method from now on. Oh, you know, so this sweet. is high stakes. The, the, yeah. What we're talking about today is not blueberries or garbage. This no. is high stakes stuff. Yeah. And that's why I think, thank you for letting me sort of tell these, you know, sort of deeper stories. Of yeah. course. Oh. Thank you for um, your courage. Thank you for being the first domino with this movement. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to know what you're doing now. What's next? What are you, what are you building? What are you doing besides moving? <laughs> <laughs> well, what we're doing, which is so exciting. Well, first of all, please, you know, sign up for our Fair Play Life newsletter. Um, we give all the new science, like that study about sex and division of labor. Um, we love to break, break the science down. But the thing I'm most excited about is because I have the 10 years of data, um, I get to now work with a really major healthcare company um, to start to create a fair play health plan Amazing. where instead of at the OBGYN's office, you're getting like a cord blood brochure, you're going to be getting hopefully uh, therapists and coaches who understand the division of labor and what happens mm-hmm. in marital dynamics and really can can help you in your postpartum journey. That's like my biggest yeah. dream. And it looks like knock on wood, it's gonna um, come true. I may, I may uh, come knocking. I'm, I'm in the process of. That's what I said. I yeah. would, but I'm. Yes, I would love right to now have you on board, please. I'm, I'm concepting a book right now around this idea of being touched out as a, as a new mother, and a lot of it I, I think it. intersects with some of this fair play stuff because I think that the touched out phenomenon wouldn't maybe be as big of a phenomenon if some of this stuff was also being um, just talked about more or addressed more. Um, and so I think there's a lot of intersection. So I may, I may hit you Absolutely. Up. <laughs> please, please. Of course. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and thank you for, you know, being willing and vulnerable as a couple to uh, open up this Pandora's box today, because mm-hmm. again, it's not always so easy. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Thank really you. Appreciate you. Be well and uh, great meeting you and yeah. um, have a easy you too. move. Hopefully we'll see yeah. you again soon. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. Have a good day. Hey, if you have a passion for helping others and you want to create a more meaningful career or add to your current skill set, it's time to become a life coach with Lumia. When I became a life coach many years ago, there wasn't anything like this. So I developed this program alongside with Noelle Cordeaux, Lumia Coach Training, and it's amazing. It's 100% live and online, meaningful, evidence-based education, real people, real community, ICF accredited to with 20 diverse instructors in a thriving alumni community. Go to theangrytherapist.com and click on Become a Coach and explore Lumia Coach Training. I'll see you in class.